It might seem like the violence in Iraq has died down, but to many people, including Al Jazeera's Imran Khan, we're in the calm before the storm. Many Iraqis thought they were about to witness the beginning of a civil war. On August 29th, fighting broke out in the heart of Baghdad between two major factions, both Shia. The fighting comes as a result of a deadlock in forming a government some 10 months after parliamentary elections. By August 30th, it was over almost as quickly as it started. After two days of violence, Baghdad's heavily fortified green zone is empty of protesters, a sharp contrast to earlier scenes. But there's a difference between stable and stuck, and none of the political rivalries that caused the fighting have been resolved. Zero. Nothing. Iraq has been stuck in political paralysis since last year's elections, if not much longer. So what could this outburst tell us about where the country is headed next? I'm Hala Mohiuddin, and this is The Take. My name is Imran Khan. I'm a senior correspondent for Al Jazeera English, and I predominantly, although not exclusively, uh, cover the Middle East and South Asia. I caught up with Imran while he's reporting in Baghdad. And it's hot, 50 degrees Celsius. That's 122 Fahrenheit. It is ridiculously hot here. I mean, at 11.30 this morning, the temperature was like 44. I imagine that, what that's like in the middle of the day. Um, even in the evening, it doesn't really cool down that much. So no one was really expecting thousands of people to come out on the streets. And that's exactly what happened. Let's start uh, by talking about what happened in Baghdad. The scenes in the green zone were unlike anything we've seen in years. What happened? I certainly had not seen anything like that for a very long time. This inter-fighting going on between two powerful, very powerful blocks got to such a stage where it looked, for all intents and purposes, like war had once again broken out in Baghdad. Those two factions have been fighting for control of the government for months. And at the root is a power struggle between two Shia leaders and rivals, Muqtada al-Sadr and former Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki. The people who were armed, the people who were actually fighting were in their hundreds, but surrounding them were, were, were thousands of people. And they could have got more people out in the streets, but the army managed to lock the outskirts of Baghdad down, and they actually managed to, to lock the interior of the Green Zone. Just to give you the geography of this, Green Zone is where all the international embassies are, it's the home of the politics of Iraq, and it's in a very small concentrated area, but a very fortified area that can easily be locked down. So if it wasn't for that, fighting would have spilled out in front of the parliament, in front of foreign embassies. Imran says the fighting came as a complete surprise, but just in the timing. This has been building for months. About a year ago, Iraq held an election that never led to a stable coalition in parliament. And this summer, the stalemate came to a head. People were predicting this for a long time. There's been a lot of infighting between very powerful political groups who each have very powerful militias. So it's perhaps unsurprising that when you have that kind of mix, that something like this was going to happen. And about those high temperatures, they tell you something about the political situation as well. 
interestingly in Iraq, any time there are protests, they happen in, in the summer. Ali Hashim is a senior journalist covering the Middle East, particularly Iran, Iraq and Lebanon. He's based in Doha for Al Jazeera. Because people like electricity, you know, a country that's one of the richest in the world in energy, in, in oil, lacking electricity. Temperatures in the city of Basra have soared to about 45 degrees Celsius, bringing misery to residents already plagued by chronic power cuts. This is something that make Iraqis feel like crazy. I mean, how would this happen? And yet, Ali says many of the people fighting last Monday and Tuesday had already been in the streets protesting for a month to reject the nomination of a new prime minister. They'd been called there by the Shia leader Muqtada al-Sadr. Sadr is one of Iraq's most important figures, wielding enormous influence over many aspects of public life. His party was the biggest winner in October's election, but he failed to form a majority coalition. He was the man at the centre of last week's violence, and then stopped it at a moment's notice. Here he is, speaking to his supporters last Tuesday. There are some brutal militias, but the satirists shouldn't be vulgar. I still believe that my supporters are disciplined. That's why, if you don't withdraw from the parliament within 60 minutes, I am not going to be the satirist movement leader again. I don't even want you to stage a peaceful demonstration. So imagine those people who responded to Muqtada al-Sadr. They stayed there for a month till the end of August. You just see how much they're loyal to him. So to understand the root of the violence, we have to understand Muqtada al-Sadr's position in Iraq. Imran says it all comes down to his political legitimacy. This all happened because of one man, the political leader Muqtada al-Sadr. He's always painted himself as an outsider to Iraq's political elite, and there is some truth to that. But for those who've never heard the name Muqtada al-Sadr, what should we know about him? He is a very mysterious figure. He shrouds himself in religion. He has enormous amount of respect from his followers. He has enormous amount of legitimacy within Iraq itself. And he derives that legitimacy because, quite simply, he is an Iraqi nationalist. He doesn't want U.S. involvement in Iraq unless it's diplomatic. He doesn't want Iranian involvement in Iraq unless it's diplomatic. And that's been his unique selling point as a politician. And that stance of independence, Ali says, also comes from Sadr's background. His family is well known in the region. Muqtada Sadr comes from the famous Sadr family. This family is controversial in the Shia history. Muqtada Sadr's father was assassinated along with two of his sons in Najaf in 1999. So Muqtada, till that moment, Muqtada wasn't in the picture. But after 2003, after the fall of Baghdad, the US invasion, suddenly there was someone called Muqtada who came to the scene. Ali says Sadr became very controversial very quickly after the US-led invasion of Iraq. To US troops, he is the deadliest thug facing them on the streets of Baghdad. The Pentagon threw the gauntlet at him. You must desist, disband or die. Muqtada responded to those three Ds by issuing a call to arms. But Sadr took on not only the Americans, but Iraq's Shia establishment as well. 
It didn't make him very popular in Iran either. The first thing that he did was challenging the Americans and challenging the clerics to, to change their approach towards the American invasion, calling on them to issue fatwas for jihad. His militia, known then as the Mahdi Army, played a major role in the fight against the US occupation and the civil war. He was notorious. His group was notorious for sectarian killings. Later on, he decided that he wants to do politics, and his movement became a political movement. Imran says that combination of religion and political power is key to understanding Sadr's base today. In 2018, he won a huge amount of seats. It was a surprise victory. It's the first election where the poorest part of Iraq's capital has elected the winning party. But he did that because he sold himself as an Iraqi nationalist and he crossed over divides. He made deals with Sunni parties. He made deals with even the Communist Party. But remember, the also the weird thing about Muqtadar al-Sadr is he doesn't hold any political office. He's not an MP. This is a man that doesn't appear on talk shows or doesn't do any of the traditional things that politicians or leaders might do. He strictly derives his authority from religion and from nationalism. But it was the political game that Sadr has been playing that contributed to the fighting. In June, he pulled his MPs from Parliament over who should form the government. In July, his supporters occupied the Parliament. Then, on August 28th, eyes turned to Iran. A Shia cleric who was Sadr's spiritual advisor withdrew his support in a surprise retirement announcement. In a tweet, Sadr alleged the announcement was not of the cleric's own will. And then he made his own dramatic announcement. Protests broke out after Shiite cleric Muqtadar al-Sadr announced he was quitting frontline politics. This resignation at this time, it comes at a time that the political crisis in Iraq has reached an elevated stage. But it wasn't the first time he's resigned. As for pulling his MPs, it's a way of triggering a new election. It's a political tool that he uses, more than any other party, incredibly well. And the reason for that is his MPs are loyal, where you can just withdraw you know, the majority of the parliamentarians in your party at one stroke. You've got more power than perhaps should be in a democracy, but that's the way Iraqi democracy was set up. It's interesting you make this distinction between, you know, religion and the fact that he's an Iraqi nationalist. Certainly a lot of people who don't know a lot about this conflict, they see Iraq going up in flames again and think this must be uh, an interreligious squabble or something, the Sunnis versus the Shias. That's not the case here. This is Shias versus Shias in some sense. It is. It's an inter-Shia conflict between two uh, very strong political blocks. The Sadarists being one and the coordination framework being the other. That block is linked to former Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki and backed by Iran. A pro-Iranian bloc called the Coordination Framework has nominated Mohammed Shia Sudani for Prime Minister. These protesters have linked him to former Premier Nouri al-Maliki. But to understand this, you've got to go back to 2003 and the US-led invasion and occupation of Iraq. 
Before 2003, the Shias were, uh, they, although the majority in terms of population, they had no political power. Saddam Hussein was it. He was a Sunni. He looked after his own people. He'd fought a war, a bloody war with Iran, which came to a stalemate. The war that's shaken the whole Gulf region and the wider world beyond. An estimated 500,000 soldiers from both sides were killed, in addition to hundreds of thousands of civilian deaths. And he didn't want any kind of Shia power, particularly Iranian influence. Then came 2003. Effectively, what that did was hand over power, not to the Americans, as most people might think, but actually to Iran. Iran saw an opportunity because there was no Saddam anymore. And frankly, the Americans really didn't know what they were doing when it came to a post-occupation Iraq. So Iran, without firing a weapon, became one of the key players. All of these Shia clerics had fled uh, to Iran. They lived in Iran. They were given you know, sanctuary in Iran. And then post-2003, they all came back to Iraq. And that's really where the Shia power blocks came into place. Ali says now a battle to be the strongest among the weak in Iraq's fragmented power-sharing system, where no party dominates and outside powers all have their say. Many of the political elite in Iraq think that there should be a new socio-political contract in Iraq rather than this system that's dysfunctional. But still, there is no decision because we know Iraq is not only a country whose decisions are made inside. Iraq is a country that represents a kind of an intersection between regional and international players who all have interests. And without a regional and international consensus, it's very unlikely that the Iraqis could get out of this misery and these problems. Which brings us, as Imran called it, to the calm before the storm. Let's talk about the bigger picture of Iraq. It's been various stages of political paralysis, and al-Sadr made this gamble to, to break it. What's happened? Well, right now, in the immediate future, um, there's two key things that happen. The Supreme Court is going to make a, an announcement on whether elections should be held. They've already put that announcement off. Uh, clearly, there's a lot of political machinations going on it's likely that they'll put that election off again. Then we have a religious festival called uh, Arba'in, a religious commemoration, a very, very sacred to the Shia. That'll last until the middle of September. Imran says all of the Shia groups have said they won't take action until Arba'in is over. But there have also been indications that after that, there may be violence. So that's what everybody is now waiting for right now. And how much does Iraq's future depend on what al-Sadr does next? Is he the, the, the one who has the power to make or break this? Well, he's certainly a key player. But in order to fight with somebody, you need somebody to fight with. And, you know, that is Nouri al-Maliki, who's turning into this, once again, a bigger politician than anybody was ever expecting it. If he comes back, he is, that's an extraordinary comeback. Imran says there's a real chance of civil war. But for now, it's still just a chance. There is a spark here, potentially. However, uh, cooler heads always seem to prevail in Iraq. And that's what we've seen in the past. So 
I mean, if a political deal can be made, then I'm sure the Iraqis will take it. Ali sees the potential for a deal as well, because that's what keeps Sadr influential. At the end of the day, he's part of the same political elite that he has built a following railing against. The leverage Sadr has today is because he can get people to the street to protest, to demonstrate. But when there is a civil war, no one is going to demonstrate anymore. It's going to be weapons that are going to decide who's going to win and who's going to be a loser and who's going to be the biggest Imran, I want to talk about where all these political machinations leave the people. You've spent a very long time in Iraq, and while we often talk to you about what's behind the latest violence, I know you've seen so much potential for the people and the country there. Can you remind us what's at stake for people there? Basically, here you have this country that should be incredibly rich. It's the second largest oil producer in OPEC. It has religious tourism, which is a, could be a mass industry. There's a huge amount of Islamic history here. I mean, this is the home of Babylon, the city of Babylon. This is Mesopotamia. You know, the amount of people that would love to come and see that, but just can't. It's a country that has so much potential. It's very young. It's youthful. There's an energy here. Like I say, this, this idea that the people want to build a better, more modern Iraq, I see it. But what he also sees is that potential draining away because people can't get jobs for a better life. When he's at Baghdad airports watching the cars pull up, it's happening in front of him. You see these young Iraqi kids who clearly aren't going on holiday. You know, they're leaving the country. They look like they've had enough. And that, I think, has always been the most heartbreaking thing, is watching the future literally leave in front of your eyes. Imran says it all comes back to what brought Iraq to this point in the first place, the US-led invasion that broke a country. I hate saying this, it gets really boring, but it's like you lay the blame at the Americans' door. The potential is all here. But once again, because of the US-led invasion and occupation of Iraq, because the opportunity Iran took to meddle in the internal affairs of Iraq, because of the short-term thinking of Iraqi politicians, we keep getting to this position where there is some peace. It lasts a couple of years and everybody pulls down the security barriers and hotels open up again. And then suddenly, within space of 24 hours, like we saw the other day, Iraq becomes poised for something. And that is the curse, I think, of a post-occupied country. And that's the take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Chloe K. Lee, Ruby Saman, Amy Walters, Nagin Oliai, and me, Hala Mahiedin. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Elmalek and Adam Abugad are our engagement producers. Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back on Friday. <laughs>